Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome Panel Beater, Trainer Wheels and wonderful guest Carl Higgs. We've got you in the real flesh. Hi Susan, hi Kent, hi Trainer Wheels. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot pseudonyms. Great to have you in the studio today. Um, we have a great guest lineup, as always, um, and we've got a public health focus today. We're focusing on life and death. And yes, dying and death, it's absolutely a part of public health. And I was listening to a podcast last night and it described it beautifully. It said, talking about pregnancy won't make you pregnant. Talking about death and die- talking about death won't make us dead. <laughs> so um, we'll be talking today with um, Susan Goldie. She's the national lead for the end-of-life strategy about the upcoming Dying to Know campaign and why it's important for us to have conversations about death and dying. But before we get to the pointy end of life, we're also going to be talking with our in-the-flesh guest, Carl Higgs, about our recent global study on healthy, livable cities. Now, this study included Melbourne and a sample of 25 cities, and this study suggests, maybe alarmingly, that um, Australian cities are out of step on walkability and public transport. So we're looking forward to hearing more about that in a minute, Carl. But firstly, how are we all? Carl, how did you, how did you find your way here? Yeah, no, it was, it was a nice chilly walk this morning, but the sun was briefly out between the clouds. It was good. Yeah. Very good. It's good to be out there in this chilly, chilly, chilly but clear skies, isn't it? And Paddle Beater? Top of the morning to you all. Lovely to be here with you. Isn't it just? And for those who, um, for, for our viewers, um, sorry, I should say for our listeners, we should be getting trainer wheels to stand up and show her beautiful belly. How, oh, okay, let me describe it to you. That is quite something. Trainer wheels, tell us, how are you? I'm all right. I was just thinking there, you know, Carl mentioned the chilly morning this morning and I've been running so hot all pregnancy. So the, um, the cool breeze was very refreshing this morning, actually. I loved it. <laughs> Well, that's, you know, that, that's the advantage of being pregnant. And um, every, every, last night we were just checking and I said to Trainer Wheels, you know, you're not going into early labour or anything like that this morning. No, no contractions. So, so far we're not having a live on-air birth. We're all good. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So let's, let, let's crack into a bit of news, shall we? This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Trainer Wheels, I think you've got an update for us, of course, on COVID. I do. I know. I'm always bringing the COVID news, aren't I? It's we kind of have to. COVID. Yeah. This is an article I came across in The Guardian this week, which I thought was just so interesting it's by Bridget Delaney or Delaney I'm not sure how I pronounce it it's called why did COVID disappear from our collective consciousness so quickly and I thought it was just super fascinating I don't know if people remember but way back in sort of May or so of 2020 there was this article in the New York Times that was doing the rounds and it was called something like how will the pandemic end or when will the pandemic end and how 
And um, it talked about how there's sort of two endings to a pandemic. There's the medical end to a pandemic when the cases decline and the deaths decline and, you know, the medical kind of side of things is less urgent and, and, um, and scary. But then there's also the social end to the pandemic where people kind of, frankly, stop caring about it as much. And this article is talking about how we've reached the social end of the pandemic now. You know, we know that case numbers are still very high. Daily deaths are still pretty significant, but we're just not really bothering about it anymore. I saw another um, little stat somewhere that the numbers of searches occurring in Australia on Google um, of COVID have dropped right off. They peaked in sort of January of this year when we had our first Omicron surge. Um, but now just people aren't even looking anymore. <laughs> isn't it interesting? It's so true, isn't it? And we see it everywhere. We know people aren't wearing masks on the trains and trams so much and people aren't really following social distancing. We've kind of, it's so last 100 years. So it's exactly so in the past. Right. Exactly right. And this article sort of contends that, it, you know, it was so hard and so all-consuming. It affected every aspect of our lives for two years that probably we just don't even want to think about it anymore. We want to just pretend it never happened and move on. Yeah. Um, and, and she also talks about how there was sort of a similar phenomenon after the Spanish flu where she said that when, the, when this pandemic started, she went back to look for some art that um, was produced during the Spanish flu and there's really not much around. Mm. So similarly, people sort of just moved on and said, oh, let's just forget about it. Apparently publishing houses aren't interested in publishing lockdown novels, um, TV show writers' rooms are sort of avoiding mention of the pandemic. It's like let's just not even mm -hmm. talk about, mm -hmm. let's just forget it happened and move on. The last two years are just a write-off. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder whether that would change because I want, myself being a, like to dabble and mucking around with a paintbrush very, very, very amateurly, and I did kind of wonder whether when we are all in lockdown whether people were creating more art and writing and doing these things. So is this kind of, is there a repository of stuff sitting there for people? I'd say there probably is, but maybe there's just not that much interest in actually mm. looking at it. Mm, mm. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of people started a novel or, you know, mm. documented their experience in lockdown, but no one really wants to read about it. I did a 24,000 stitch cross stitch. Wow. <laughs> that was Holy <laughs> moly. I would, never, like a lot. I would never do that if there wasn't a lockdown, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So Anyway, worth a read. I thought it was a good little article. That's 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 interesting, and I, I guess I guess what it reminds us too is to try not to get too complacent because it's well and truly not over yet. So, push on through. Exactly right. Mm. Thank you, Trainer Wheels. Um, and I guess so. My little news story today is um, Palliative Care Week just wraps today. And you may or may not know, but it was National Palliative Care Week and there was a range of media and other um, publicity events that went on t uh, during the week to kind of acknowledge and recognise this. And the, um, I guess what, what I kind of, I work in end-of-life care as well, um, not palliative care, and there is often a understanding that palliative care is synonymous with end-of-life care. But actually, palliative care can begin from the moment that a person is diagnosed with a life-limiting illness. And this is a, um, a, a kind of a message that people in palliative care have been trying to raise um, for some time. And Mandy Martin is a um, specialist care nurse um, in Ballarat Hospice Care. And she was in the media um, highlighting the message that palliative care is not just about death and dying. It focuses on living well and symptom management to contribute to a better life. And palliative care, of course, has progressed a lot in the past decade. And in my experience, I see that a lot of people base their uh, perception on palliative care on that of 
perhaps their parents or others in the past, and things have changed a lot since then. Um, so, trainer wheels, you probably see this in your practice as well in Madison. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we're sort of taught from quite early on to, um, I suppose, de demystify palliative care because there is this conception in the public that if you're being referred to palliative care, it means we think you're dying and we're giving up on you. Um, but people can have many, many years of good life ahead of them. Um, but palliative care specialists are really, really good, as, as you said, at managing tricky symptoms with life-limiting illnesses. And an early referral can make someone's quality of life far, far better for those remaining, you know, weeks, months or years that they might have, depending on the case. And I actually, in my practice, I, I have found that there is more openness to people um, being involved with palliative care early on. And I, I hope maybe that's partly because that message is getting through mm -hmm. that, you know, we're not we're not sending you there to go away and die and, you know, forget about you. We actually, you know, the, these people are very, very clever at making your quality of life far better um, and if you know the longer we wait the harder it is to get on top of those difficult symptoms and, and a lot of patients are actually quite open to early involvement with palliative care which I think is fantastic. Absolutely absolutely and it also helps to build that trust relationship as well doesn't it so then people have a sense of security that they're in safe hands and they're with experts who can help them um, over time. So the um, the theme for palliative care week this week was it's your right and it was on the focus on the rights of all Australians to access high-quality palliative care um, when and where they need it. So we all know we've got a growing population. And um, Palliative Care Victoria is a um, peak body for palliative care and end-of-life end of care, and they advocate hard for the, um, for, for the field. And they estimate that there's a 4% per annum growth in the need for palliative care, I guess, as we age. And um, they also have, um, in, in their most recent data, they estimate there's about at least 10,000 Victorians who die each year without getting the required palliative care. Um, not surprisingly, um, in regional areas, and the more li like accessing to, I guess, all healthcare and other services, is the more rural and regional you go, the less access to services, and um, in particular around Hume, Gippsland and the Loddon Mallee regions. So the um the budget in 2019 which was um I guess for the last for this last period of time they committed to an extra 72 million over 4 years and the focus of that I think um is interesting because it's been more um three times more on community palliative care compared to inpatients and studies tell us that most people want to die at home 70% of people want to die at home but in fact only about 14% of people get that so um, having that focus on the funding for home palliative care has been excellent and important. So that's the news um, from the area of palliative care. I guess one more thing that came through was a study from Flinders University that they are looking into the needs of aged care workers in helping uh, have the skills to support some one of their residents accessing palliative care. I'm glad to see that because it is an area I see in my own work where um, someone in aged care, it can be sometimes a bit more tricky to access palliative care when they need it. So helping to bridge that gap is a worthy place of a study. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
So today we have a public health angle, as we know, on living well within our environment. We know that walking briskly for 30 minutes a day is a great way to improve and maintain our overall health. We know that it's free to do that and every day, doing it every day can increase our cardiovascular fitness, our strengthen our bones, reduce body fat and boost our muscle power. So as well as reducing a range of health conditions. And it's something that we're encouraged to build into our daily routine, such as getting off the tram, stop earlier, walking, not driving to the shops, walking to Triple R, not driving, Carl, um, and those sorts of things. And so with this health message in mind, it's we're very grateful to have Carl Higgs, and he's a kind of an, I don't know how you describe you, an urban spatial design technical guru, and he's going to give us some insights, <laughs> you might help to me to redefine that, on how Melbourne is shaping up to help us to shape up. Thanks for having me on the show, and yeah, I'll take that, that's a great description, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, welcome to the studio, and Carl, first of all, tell us about you, you're a, a research data scientist, you're a PhD student, so... What is it that you do and what got you into doing this? Yeah, so I've got a background in spatial epidemiology and computational statistics. Actually, way back before that, I was a research assistant in a dementia research group, which kind of ties in with the palliative care theme this week. But I want to go further in that. So I went and did a Master of Public Health. And through that, I was, uh, became interested in the mapping of um, disease and mapping of health exposures and I was introduced to Billy Giles Cortez Research Group, which is now the Healthy Livable Cities Lab in the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT. Um, and they have a, a long ongoing research program concerned with urban livability and how it, the built environment impacts our health and wellbeing and provides us with opportunities for physical activity, but social connection and a range of other things that are good for us in numerous ways and for uh, environmental sustainability also. Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm doing a PhD uh, related to measuring um, urban livability in neighbourhoods across cities using open data and developing software to help others do this and get uh, the findings about these kinds of things out there. Carl, we can't let you not define spatial epidemiology for you. I reckon our listeners have got a sense of what epidemiology is. We've got a couple of people who speak about that a bit here, but spatial epidemiology, what's going on there? Yeah, I wasn't sure about the jar <laughs> jargon term there, but I thought, oh, we've had, we've had three years of a, pan of a pandemic. Um, with the, the word epidemiologist is well and truly out and about. Um, we yeah. know what armchair uh, epidemiologists are, <laughs> the armchair expert epidemiologists. Yeah, yeah so um, really it's to do with... Pa spatial patterns of um, how the environment can be one of the contributing factors to certain um, health outcomes. So where you live matters. Uh, and, and if you're looking at data, it's when as well. So mm -hmm. space and time, how those things come together, that some places may have certain aspects about them that can actually, across your life, because you live in these places, it's one of the, the main things that you're exposed to, really um, impact the trajectory of what opportunities are available to you and then have actually have health impacts because of that. And so physical, opportunities for physical activity is one of these important aspects. 
And I'm super looking forward to talking to you about this because I've lived in, uh, my main countries have been Melbourne, Hong Kong and Auckland. And so the two, they're three quite different cities and I, I, I have a real perspective on them. So I'm looking, you know, the comparison between them is so interesting and the ways in which they can encourage us to be part of that environment um, in a physical and healthy kind of way. And I guess, you know, you're looking at walkability, you're looking at air pollution, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so this Global Observatory of Healthy and Sustainable Cities, what is that? What is this? Yeah, so the, that, the Global Observatory of Healthy and Sustainable yeah. Cities, is, it's a website actually, okay. it's healthysustainablecities.org and it's pr- promoting the findings for um, our study of 25 cities across 19 countries, um, published in a, a, a couple of weeks ago in the Lancet Global Health series on urban design, transport and health. Um, and so we, we've, we have this series that's been published, but we've produced uh, 46 reports for the 25 cities across 16 languages to get these findings out um, for local communities uh, about how their cities are tracking in terms of the policies that could help support um, development for healthy cities the quality of those policies, inequities within the city, whether where the people actually live have access to the kind of amenities that would support them to be physically active lifestyles or whether, like our Australian cities, for many people you really do need a car to get about. Yeah, and I encourage our um, listeners to really look at their website, healthysustainablecities.org. It's got your your maps and your infographics are absolutely beautiful, and they describe things so well and so clearly for for people to look at, like the um, proximity to fresh food, to open spaces, uh, to public transport, and that type of thing. It's laid out really nicely. And in your study, it does suggest that um, Australian cities may be, I found this very interesting, less likely to promote healthy and sustainable lifestyles compared to some lower-income global counterparts. And so, I mean, you know, surely the more the, the higher income, the uh, better off we should be. So why is it that we're potentially worse off than some of these other cities? Yeah, so the, part, part of what that's getting at is, is about this concept of walkability. And the way we've measured it in our study is... It's, it's, it's a simple measure that's predictive of, but predict, found to be predictive of walking, relating to access to a mix of service and amenities within a walking distance, um, population density, which creates the demand for having local services and amenities, and street connectivity, which is like how you can get around, again, to get to services and amenities, because these are the, the draw cards that kind of get you out of your house and enable you to live locally, um, inclu- and includes access to reliable public transport, access to quality uh, public open space, parks and plazas, places where you can meet people. Um, and while we m- many people, for example, have access to public transport, m- most people don't have access to regularly service public transport. So you mentioned before hopping off the, the station, the tram station, a couple of stops early. In Melbourne, it's, Melbourne's really big, a lot of people have... They may have a bus stop near them, but that bus stop isn't necessarily, well, regularly serviced during daytime hours. For sure. And it may not go directly to where they want to go, so there aren't necessarily always the same opportunities for accessing service and amenities. But we found that in many other cities globally, maybe there are often those services and amenities locally, so maybe they don't. they may not have the public transport infrastructure we have, but they may have the actual 
densities and amenities locally that they can live locally. Yeah, for sure. Trainer Wills, did you have something you wanted to ask here? I just wanted to sort of, you know, thank you, Carl, for bringing this subject to light. I think it's so important and it's something that's really easily overlooked. I know your work sort of goes a little bit further than just obesity, but but if we do focus on obesity, it's very easy to kind of target individuals um, in, in kind of... Um, I suppose, making change in their lives. But it's such a complex issue that has so many social factors. And we talk about the obesogenic environment um, where, as, as we've been saying, if you can't walk to work or access fresh food, how, how on earth can you possibly expect to have a, life, a healthy lifestyle? Or, you know, if you, if you have to work 14 hours a day, how can you possibly incorporate regular exercise into your routine? And I think the walkability of cities is such a, such a fundamental aspect of that and and having incidental exercise as a kind of normal everyday part of your life like walking to school walking to the shops if that's not something that's accessible to most people that's a, a huge oversight in terms of our kind of city planning and stuff we've sort of I think in the discussion so far we've kind of gone through all the aspects of a of a walkable city and and, and a kind of um what an ideal city would look like. But I wondered just for simplicity, if you could kind of list the key things that you think Australian cities need to do to improve their walkability and their um, sustainability and, you know, all the other wonderful flow on effects that come with that. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a it's a big call. It's it's an important <laughs> one. Um, so there there is a lot of momentum actually, particularly since in the last couple of years with the things that we've gone through for having the. There's a lot of terms for it with varying numbers, but a 15-minute city or a 20-minute neighbourhood. But they're getting towards the gist of you are able to reach employment within a, a reasonable time frame that you don't have to travel so far. So this is about get, helping people get cars off the road. So it's it's it, it's beyond just physical activity for your individual benefit. There's, there's benefits for sustainability uh, in terms of carbon emissions as well. Um, being able to live more locally... You can have more social connection with people around you. So it's about having more population density. It, um, I, I've just I've just blabbed myself into a little <laughs> circle here. Apologies. No, but that's good. in terms of the things we actually measured in our study, we did measure distance to a supermarket and fresh food, um, distance to public any public transport, distance to public transport that's frequently serviced, which is a distinct concept, um, which we didn't necessarily do as well as we should have in in, in our Australian cities. One um, of the things that you raised there, I think, is interesting, was about the density and. In my observation is that in Australia, our density is, you know, Melbourne's a big, sprawling city, and so that's where, you know, it can be harder for people to access, to, to walk to, uh, to to supermarkets and things. And compared to in Hong Kong, where we were very, very closely packed in together, but it was always literally a few minutes and we were out in the national parks. And, you know, it was 40% national parks surrounding this very dense city, so it was very quick and easy to get out and walk to... Um, uh, to, to, you know, to, to food markets or to to get out for a walk, and that's the difference. It's, hard to, it's kind of hard to change that in some ways. But one of the things I noticed on your um, on your infographics and your website was that um, there were um, twelve policies. Um, uh, about livability of a city, and Melbourne was actually pretty good. They had those; they had a policy for each of those, but they didn't always have indicators for um, a target for each policy. And so, you know, it was 
um, environment that very much was a feature in our voting this year and obviously very important to people. So what's your sense of what we could be doing um, or should we be campaigning or what should we be doing to improve targets in our policies in, um, in Victoria? Yeah, so that's it's a really important point. It's one thing having a, a policy that's aspirational um, and, and saying the right words, but it's another thing to be actually be able to measure um, whether, whether that policy is being met. And it's really important for accountability, really, um, and to, to be able and to evaluate, well, we, we've done this and it, it, we, we know it's consistent with health evidence, hopefully, um, but is it, is it actually um, being, having the uh, impacts we expect? Have we done what we said we would do? So you need to be able to actually have something quantifiable in there to say that, well, we've moved beyond words, we're actually doing this. And then you can actually look at, is it having the effect that you wanted? And if it isn't, maybe that needs to be looked at. So, yeah, it's, a, it's about transparency in meeting these aspirational goals, having some ambition, so it, not just sitting on your laurels as a, as a livable city for expatriates. But exactly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. And there is momentum around these concepts as well. I, I know the 20-minute the, the neighbourhood, is, is, there's a big push for this in Victoria uh, at, at the moment, and um, but yeah, having things measurable and aligned with consistent uh, the, the health evidence, I think, is really important. Carl, with the, this uh, project that you did, this research and the data collection and the, the compare comparison um, work that you've done with all these cities, you've obviously brought to the fore a lot of really valuable information. To what extent did the um, project then try and look for explanations for why things were they were? were why things are the way they are um you know as a as a heuristic in public policy we can think of uh culture politics and economy that explain a lot of the reasons why we have the particular policies we do um did you take a look at the explanations and perhaps that helps identify the obstacles for change it's a it's a really good point because these are some really diverse cities and um we did we, the, the study was a large collaborative study, so we were working with um, lo local um, colla collaborators in each of these cities, and that's how the cities were, in, in fact, recruited, um, through a, a network of collaborators um, who are involved in physical activity and built environment research. Um, we, we found that Australian the Australian cities shared a lot in common with uh, the U US cities um, and, and Auckland, um, and that they... That the, they they really reflected the a kind of car dependent um, sprawling neighbourhood expansion, which is kind of a, a design pattern after the after the Second World War. In, in these, I mean, it, it's I think it's particularly interesting the the history of set, the settler colonial history of these three countries. Um, they 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 the, I, th I think there's something in 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 how these. Uh, r relatively recent cities have developed um, in tandem and with, particularly with the sprawl uh, with designed for cars compared to older, more established cities uh, around the world, which underwent uh, kind of de their development before cars were... Um, Around, yeah. I reckon we could probably also yeah. map the uh, cities that are close by car manufacturing yeah. companies, for example. True. So in Hong Kong, there's no car manufacturing uh, uh, business, but uh, in um, well, you know, in, in Australian cities, not anymore. But once upon a time, and certainly U.S. cities were very 
car orientated, weren't they? As as part of the formal economy of you know manufacturing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So to get back to your question, Kent, it's it's a really important point. The or why is this? Um, and we, if you read our series, we we did do go into this a, a little bit, but the the focus was more on the what, like we're on the on the measurement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of, like, the geographical context that that are across these places and mm-hmm. and the cultural context. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot there. So, Carl, just before we wrap, what's the future future for Global Observatory in your study? Yeah, so there's um, an ambition. To, so we yeah we've measured for 25 cities across these 19 countries, but there's an ambition to um, take it further. Well, I think we're calling it the Thousand Cities Challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we've published our methods for um, evaluating policy and spatial indicators um, throughout through our series. But I'm wanting to develop uh, software to help us further. Um, Help help people more readily kind of participate in this and track track policy and spatial indicators longitudinally through the global observatory. And that's fantastic because what it is, it's just helping people to make wise policy decisions about the environment and the space we live in that affects our health. Um, Carl Hicks, thanks so much for ha- being with us today. We appreciate having you on the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Going back to our public health focus, we've had a bit on living and now we're going to the pointy end of dying. And I read this lovely quote and it said, Ask a Buddhist what's the leading cause of death? And they will tell you birth. <laughs> and it's true. We all know that there's two things that are guaranteed in life and death is one of them. And yet we always function in this kind of um, eternal denial. And even myself, who work around people every day who are nearing the end of their life, we have this kind of sense that it's never going to happen to us or to the people closest to us. Um, but, um, you know, today Susan Goldie, she is very much focused on normalising the openness of um, talking about death throughout our lives. And um, Susan's the national lead for the end-of-life strategy, including Groundswell and the Dying to Know campaign, and she's going to tell us all about these today. Um, So, Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You You are welcome, and I'm really excited to have our chat today. We've got a lot to pack into about 13 or 14 minutes worth of talking. Um, but first of all, I want to get straight down to a little bit of the nitty-gritty, okay, about what death and dying looks like in Australia, just to paint a little bit of context for us. And um, I looked, it's one of the reports that you sent through to us from the Grattan Institute, and it told us that dying is more institutionalised in Australia um, compared to the rest of the world. And it said that about half of Australians die in hospital, but actually, and about a third, a third in residential ed aged care, and they often have what was described in the report as impersonal deaths, and many of them feel disempowered, um, that many want to die at home, but only a handful of them actually do so. And so I'm hoping, Susan, you can give us a bit of a picture of why this is in Australia. Why are people dying in hospital and not at home? Great question, Cyber Sue. And I think there's there's a number of factors but they all boil down to our key message, which is we need to talk more and plan more for the the choices 
around end of life. We're an affluent country and relatively speaking, we have a well-resourced public health system, which means that um, in, during last life stage and at end of life, there are more resources than in, other, than in some countries. But death has become medicalised and sanitised, which means that many of us just disappear into um, medical systems that are meant to cure, not to support at end of life. I think within our um, patchwork of relatively good healthcare systems is, of course, palliative care, which is that medical specialty, which is designed to support us through end of life, through dying, and help us achieve a good death or a death in the way in which we want it. But palliative care is not equally available to all Australians, which means that while it is a medical specialty which focuses on the whole person, um, what matters to us in terms of values and spirituality and social needs, what matters to our families at end of life. So many Australians don't have access to that particular medical framework, which might enable more people to die in place of choice. Yeah. Thirdly, it seems that culturally we have lost the art of death being a social event. We have We've just become disconnected, certainly in my part of Australian culture, which is of British heritage. Not all cultures are disconnected from uh, last life stage, but my culture certainly is. And we have forgotten how to embrace dying as part of living, as the Buddhists would say. Mm. And I mean, I I so see that, Susan, like it's become, and in, in, in historically death was a part of life and we might have one, two, three, gener three generations living together in, in the home and children grew up seeing their grandparents getting sick and dying of old age, but now that's become a hospitalised type of event. And um, and the other thing I pick up on that you said was that medicine is about curing and there's kind of a bit of a disharmony. So sometimes I feel that when someone comes to the end of life or um, uh, treatment starts to fail, it's seen as a failure, but actually it's a part of life. It's not a failure. So there's, a cha there's some kind of shift in the way we think about this, which isn't necessarily doing us a good service. So yeah. We are unnecessarily prolonging life mm. instead of embracing dying. Do you, trainer wheels, do you have something to add to that? I'm just nodding very yeah. emphatically because I, it's certainly in my experience in hospital, I, I came across a lot of patients who were ending, nearing the end of their lives and a lot of futile treatments were given to them, which was prolonging life but not offering any decent quality of life. And I, I found it a very, very difficult experience. And, um, you know, as the most junior member of the team, it's hard to speak up and say, why are we doing this? But it was a question that was mm. <laughs> in my mind a lot of the time. And, and you know, I and, and sometimes patients and families are really um, eager to try everything and do everything. But I think there is certainly a cultural problem in medicine of not being able to accept when we've done what we can and, and it's, it's time to let nature take its course. Absolutely. And so, Susan, is that the, are those, it's kind of a good segue into the conversations about preparing for end of life. Is that the type of conversation that's part of your uh, Dying to Know campaign conversations? Tell us about that and tell us about Groundswell. CyberSue, it absolutely fits the way um, Training Wheels just described it. It's not just, I think, the way the medical profession works, it's also that 
as consumers of healthcare services, we don't have the right questions. Yeah. We don't have a sense of what we should be asking. We don't have the right language. Mm. And that's where Dying to Know Day comes in, which is a, a national health campaign um, auspiced by the Groundswell Project Australia. And it's a simple premise. We plan for big life events, births, um, faith-based rituals that mark different passages into different life stages, weddings, uh, job stages, career, education, but we seem terrified mm. about the prospect of planning for the most inevitable ritual of all, which is mm. the passage. That is such a great statement, isn't it? We plan for all our big events for, in life, but we don't mm. plan for this event. Mm. Yeah. So if you if you don't talk about it, you can't plan for it because planning is about thinking through your options. That means getting some information, being aware of what dying is about and what matters to me in order to have a good death. But then it's about connecting with those people and talking with those people who are going to help me achieve a good death. Mm. And that's where the planning bit comes in. And Dying to Know Day is uh, it's a campaign that's been running now for over a decade, but we are really taking it to the next level now. We are wanting to reach out to Australians at all life stages and say, what does end-of-life planning mean for you? It might be a small thing, it might be a large thing, but let's all think about what um, we we might want to talk about with people that we care about, people close to us, and how we might want to be prepared. And what might that look like? It might mean I am starting my first job and I might be simply thinking about what superannuation might mean to me, what that might enable me to think about in terms of quality of life at another, at another stage. I might be um, an adult with a young family, uh, with a young child. I might think, oh, my goodness, what would happen if I died unexpectedly? Mm -hmm. Talking and planning enables us to prepare both for unexpected and expected death. We think about being old and dying, and that, of course, isn't the case for all of us. So end-of-life planning at every life stage can help us be prepared. And I think I read in your um, in your article that about 30% of deaths are unexpected. Is that correct? Yeah. And my observation, and trainer wheels might agree, that even when people kind of expect it, they still don't really expect it when it actually happens, um, even if it's so-called expected. So, um, yeah, being prepared for the unexpected. And so the, these preparations that you're talking about, is that what the Get Dead set is about? Cyber Sue, it absolutely is. We would love every Australian to get dead set in a way that is right for them. We don't want to tell anybody what end-of-life planning should look like. We want to provide quality, simple information about some of the conversations and some of the options around a range of issues. So that might be a little bit better understanding about what palliative care actually means and when I might want to um, ask health professionals about palliative care and how to access it. It might mean considering what kind of funeral um, or send-off I might actually want that honours my life and connects 
to the people who are going to um, live beyond the end of my life. It might be thinking about um, my financial affairs. It might be thinking about my recipe collection mm-hmm. or the plants in my garden or my favourite songs or my worst mm. ever joke. <laughs> and building that legacy yeah. that is the way in which I'm going to connect and be connected to the people I care about who live beyond my lifetime. Yeah, and I like I like that bit about your joke too because what it is, it's a little bit about keeping this light and keeping it also like it's real, it's practical and it's planning, but it's also doesn't have to be necessarily terribly morbid and and um, and grim either, right? And I guess, yeah, also you mentioned, um, you know, you're talking about planning. Does, does volu- Voluntary Assisted Dying, you're in New South Wales um, and you're legis- you've just been legislated there last week as well. So across Australia, Australians except for ACT and Northern Territories now have access to that. Does Voluntary Assisted Dying feature in your kind of considerations or planning for end of life? Cyber Suet absolutely does. At uh, the Groundswell Project, we, uh, we see that our role is not to uh, encourage Australians in a particular direction around end-of-life planning, but we are so excited that there is one more very significant choice which Australians will now have to hand almost across the country, Not quite. we're not quite there yet, um, which enables them to have more control over where they would like to die and um, what matters to them at end of life in terms of quality of life as they are dying. So we're very excited about this. And trainer wheels. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that that I think even if people, you know, if the utilisation of voluntary assisted dying isn't really widespread, if it can normalise conversations about death and get people thinking about them, that's absolutely a net good anyway getting people thinking about it and and just feeling overall more empowered about their choices and and the options that are available to them being a tangible thing to ask for i think that is a really important point i don't have any evidence to back this up but i think it is going to improve the caliber of conversations right across the country uh, around um, end of life issues broadly i think you you're spot on. I think that is a good way to put it. it it's going to be a net good mm. for everybody. Well, there you go. Um, and that's a massive policy. We're talking policy today, and that's another big policy shift, isn't it? Yeah. So this dying to know day that you've been mentioning, when is that day and what happens on that day? So dying to know day is always the 8th of August. Mm-hmm. And during the whole month of August, individuals communities, workplaces, um, health services up and down the country take time out to organise a small event or a a large event. It might be a cup of tea with a couple of friends to say, I'm a bit nervous about this, but let's have a go about talking about death. It's a bit scary, but let's have a go. It might be a residential aged care facility putting up some of our collateral. You've seen we've got a... a, um, an image this year of uh, some people driving into a very lovely sunset and um, saying, okay, let's have some conversations and support residents and their families to feel comfortable to talk about the realities of end of life and what matters to you now. 
one of my favourite, really simple activities is something called a dying to know day wall. You put up a big something or other and some textures or some chalk and invite people to just put one thing up on that wall. What do I want to do before I die? And that to me validates A, that inevitability of death, but B, the, the importance of living well until that last day. That uh, my mortality is um, a fact, but gee, I've, I've got real options to live well and to honour my values before I go. So let's put something up on yeah. that wall. That's um, before I die. This is what I'm going to. That do. is so that is wonderful. It can be a yeah. fun activity. That and, and, and you know everything is precious, isn't it? When it's time limited. Susan Goldie, um, we appreciate having you on the show. Carl Hicks, thanks for having having you on the show today. Panel Beta, Trainer Wheels, thank you everyone for being here today. Over and out from Radiotherapy. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.